2 Kings chapter 17 is where we are tonight. In a sense, this chapter tonight has been a long time coming. Uh, if you've been with us the past few months, we've been going through 2 Kings, and it seems like every week it gets worse than the one before, and every week I need to find a new illustration for how they, they're still falling. And uh, you think this will be the end of it, and God can't possibly tolerate it any longer, and then they'll be kicked out of the land. Well, tonight, it comes to a screeching halt. Tonight, they do lose the land. Uh, God finally does remove his people from the promised land. You know, the Old Testament contains the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3, describes the worldwide flood in Genesis 6 through 9, it describes the history of Israel in the book of Judges all the way through 2 Kings. But perhaps the most significant event in the Old Testament, theologically speaking, it could be, you could argue, is the Abrahamic covenant. That God promised to Abraham that he would give him a land and that he would give his descendants this land. His descendants would be numerous. Now part of the covenant is that one of his descendants would be the Savior and that by him the nations of the world would be blessed. But another part of the covenant is that his descendants would dwell in this particular land that is charted out for him. It's not an abstract land. It's not a spiritual land wherever a church is. I mean, God took Abraham up on a hill and told him, look, and he sent Lot over to Sodom. Lot chose that way. And then Abraham looks at the other way and looks at Israel, and that's the land. That's where the promise will be. This is the land given to Abraham and his descendants. And now tonight, in chapter 17, you see Abraham's descendants lose that land. They get evicted. And it's over. You know, God had made a couple covenants with his people. The, the Abrahamic covenant, of course, was the first one. The Mosaic covenant would be the, the second one. And you could say it this way. Because his people didn't keep the second covenant, they lose the first one. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration because we know that Israel is in the land even at this present day. And in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, God will bring the land promises to fulfillment. But it seems, for all intents and purposes, what we read tonight in 2 Kings 17, that the Abrahamic covenant seems violated because Israel is evicted from the land. Tonight we're going to read about Israel's funeral. And it's short on mourners. Nobody's shedding a lot of tears. Uh, but we can act sad for them as we look at the passage tonight. So far through the book of 2 Kings and 1 Kings as well, Israel has acted with impunity. From chapter to chapter, they have acted like God never really would judge them. After all, they're the Israelites. That's been their attitude. That God can't judge us because we are children of Abraham. God's not going to deal with us. We can, we can get away literally with murder if we want to. And that seems to be the way they've always acted. And at this point, Israel is so bad that she can't be helped by even a little goodness. First, let's jump into this and read about the, the moment of death. This is the, uh, right, up into, uh, right up until they're exiled. Chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, and we read more about him last week, um, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. Remember the two nations, Judah and Israel. Israel's the one that's going to get evicted tonight. And he reigned nine years. So this is their, their last king. And he gets a nine-year reign. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. He wasn't as bad as the other kings were, is the point. But remember, that's not you know, really a good statement, is it? You know, this guy, this guy is an awful king. I mean, I'm not saying he was like Hitler, but he was really, really bad. Well, that's not exactly a compliment. 
Well, that's Israel's last king. I mean, he was horrible, but he's not as bad as they come, I guess. All things considered. I mean, look at all the kings. Verse 3, against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. And just, there's just kind of this passive expression there, like came up. Do you remember how that happened? Israel kept attacking Judah, and so the king of Judah paid the Assyrians to attack Israel. And that was last week, and you're expected to remember it. Here he just says the king of Assyria came up to attack them. Yeah, because he was paid by Judah to do so. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So the last Israel king gets enslaved. It becomes just a territory, and they have to start... So in other words, Israel gets annexed by Assyria here. That's what's happening. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. You don't say. For he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt, which just begs for this question. So what about so? Come on. <laughs> so the king of Israel is enslaved to the king of Assyria. He sends messengers secretly to so, tiptoeing away, and he offers no tribute to the king of Assyria. He'd done for year to year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. This is the treachery. The king of Israel, after, who knows, four or five years, six years of this, keeps paying the king of Assyria to keep him safe, which again is like paying the burglars to watch your house. He's paying the king of Assyria not to plunder his, his stuff. He's not crying out to Yahweh. He's not crying out to God. But after six or seven years of this, he gets so desperate, he sends messengers down to, to Egypt to bribe the Pharaoh. Like, what well, can I give you my money instead of the Assyrians? The Assyrians find out, probably because the only way messengers would get there would be through Judah or through Edom or Moab or uh, people that aren't on Israel's side. I mean, Israel has no allies anymore. And so they get ratted out, kidnapped. The king of Assyria finds out about this. Uh, and binds him up and locks him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded all the land, came to Samaria, and for three years besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. You know, treachery is like an Old Testament soap opera here. Israel was paying taxes to one nation, tried to do another, gets ambushed, but they get kicked out of their land in one verse here. One verse. After a book about battles, a book about kings, a book about uh, strategic maneuvers in the battlefield, a book about prophets swooping in and, and all the delusions. I mean, there's battle after battle in this book. Here is perhaps the most significant battle in Israel's history, and you don't even get any, it lasted three years and a verse. <laughs> This is the end. It's as if the narrator has run out of patience with Israel. He's done describing these battles. He just says it's, it's over for them. They're exiled from the land. They're taken away, populated in different places around the world. No prophetic intervention, no fantastic battle scenes, no story about the wall falling. Just, it's over. So tonight... For an outline, I want to do our own kind of autopsy on Israel. We want to look at the autopsy of what went wrong in Israel. That's what the narrator does. This is where the narrator pauses the story. For the first time in all of 1 Kings and all of 2 Kings, the narrator is going to stop the story. This is where it stops being historical narrative for a few verses. He pauses, and he's going to give you the autopsy. He's going to look at the body here of Israel that has been shipped away, and he's going to tell you what went wrong. You know, right now there's a, a, a case, a court case in Nevada. I don't know if any of you have been following it, where the newspaper 
a bunch of newspapers, a hundred newspapers, got their hands on all of the uh, the autopsies from the shooting, uh, Mandalay Bay shooting there in um, I think it was October in Las Vegas, and a judge ruled they're all public records and they should all be released to the press. And the press has all these autopsies. And uh, the families of one of the victims has sued um, the two newspapers that got it that are located in Nevada, saying it's a violation of privacy. It's only one family that sued, 58 autopsies, and the, the judge ruled in the family's favor and said, you know, you, the press can't release their autopsies, can't give you any facts about them, violation of this family's privacy. The newspaper says, you know, all the names are taken out of the autopsies. There's no names. There's no way to tell the differences between, there's 58 of them, what are you supposed to do? And so the judge has sent uh, officers of the court over to the newspaper, and this is going on right now, I mean, I don't know, how, maybe it'll be over by the end of this, going over to the newspaper right now to go through the newspaper's files and dig out and get the autopsy. I mean, I don't know if this has ever happened in the United States before, where a judge has sent officers of the court into a newspaper office to go through their files and take government documents back from them. And this is kind of a First Amendment-wise, this is a big deal. You know, if you're a libertarian or like religious freedom, I mean, which I do, this is kind of a big deal. So who knows how it's going to be resolved? Maybe the Supreme Court will step in. I don't know. But the newspaper's response is we can't tell them apart anyway. They all have the same cause of death. <laughs> Everybody was shot and bled to death. I mean, what are you expecting to find in these? What's so important about this? And you have that in the back of your mind as you read this autopsy here. I mean, you're, you're going to read about Israel here, and you're not going to find anything surprising here. They were killed by God for their apostasy, for their sin. There's no dramatic cause of death to be found. But the author is going to give you a couple descriptions. First cause of death, forgetfulness in verse 7. Verse 7, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. This is the narrator interrupting a story and preaching a little bit. He says, this is why this happens. And he goes back a thousand years. Let's go back to Pharaoh. Let's go back to Moses. Let's talk about all that happened so long ago. And he starts to understand what's happening in Israel. You have to go back to this covenant that God made with his people, that he brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh. He rescued them. Now remember, we started tonight by talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And remember where the covenant to Abraham was made. It was made not far away from Israel. Before Abraham went to Egypt, he went to Israel. He stood on the mountain. He looked at the land, and God told him, this will be yours. But then... Abraham and the patriarchs were sent away and they migrated. They had that journey that went on and on through, through the pages of Genesis, all the way really from Genesis 12 until Exodus 1, bringing them from the land of Israel to Egypt, where they had to wait 400 years before they could go back to Israel. And it's worth asking yourself, why all the geographic moving around? Why didn't God just put them in Israel initially? I mean, God can do whatever he wants. What a time saver. Cuts down our frequent flyer miles right here. Just leave Abraham in Israel. Why drag him to Egypt for 400 years with his family? And the answer, which Moses provides for you, is that the sins of the people living in the land at that time were not yet sufficient to justify their eviction. Like there are wicked people, but God said, and we're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, as we're dealing with here, but God says, give them more time. 
they need another four centuries of unchecked wickedness. Then when you come back and expel them from the land, nobody will take their side. <laughs> nobody will say, oh, God is overreacting. This is described in Genesis 15, verse 16. You'll come back here four generations uh, later, for the fourth generation of your patriarchs, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And remember, it was centuries later when they come back. The Amorites' iniquity had risen and risen and risen. And finally, it was justifying them being annihilated and wiped out of the land. So now remember, ask yourself, how bad must Israel be at this point? If God wouldn't just willy-nilly throw the Amalekites out, imagine how bad the Israelites must be that they get evicted. And remember, God led them out of Egypt. That's what's described here in verse 7. God led them out of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, that's another just one dramatic verse. Led them out of Egypt. How? The plagues, for starters. The Passover. The parting of the Red Sea. Remember that? The drowning of the Pharaoh's army. That's impressive. Followed by 40 years in the wilderness. Followed by manna. And when they got tired of manna, they got quail. (laughs) It's funny if you know the story. (laughs) I mean, they got water out of rocks. They were provided for this whole journey. And then God leads them dramatically back into the promised land with the parting of the, the, the Jordan River. I mean, they had one sign after another as they're coming back in. This is Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, nations more numerous and mighty than yourselves, and when Yahweh, your God, gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. That was the prohibition. Moses gave that to them right before they entered the promised land. And yet, the years go by and they forget. They have excuses for why they don't believe God, excuses for why they don't follow God. You may have heard people say, I believe God if only I had a sign. I prayed for God to give me a sign. God, wiggle the curtain if you're real. Gideon style. God, just give me the sign to prove. Well, imagine being an Israelite. Signs don't help people. People see the the curtain wiggle and think, oh, wiggle the other curtain then, you know? (laughs) Signs don't convince people. Think of all the signs Israel had, and yet they refused to believe. And that's the lesson of Israel is their forgetfulness, verse 7 says. They just didn't remember how God had rescued them. And this is not, spiritual amnesia is not unique to Israelites. It's a very prevalent disease even here in Springfield, Virginia. Can you believe it? There's no inoculation for it. There's no immunization against spiritual amnesia. What it, ta- it looks like in your life is that you forget how the gospel changed your life. You get accustomed to it. You get thankful that God, you're thankful that God saved you, and then over time, your thankfulness wanes, and you lose sight of it. You don't dwell on it anymore. Life just becomes normal, and sin becomes more enticing, and you get lured away because you forgot about that dramatic salvation you experienced in your life. You forgot how the Lord rescued you. I mean, take your mind back to before you knew Christ. 
I know this is harder for people who are, who are raised in the church or raised in Christian families, but one of the blessings of not being raised in a Christian family is I can do this in my own mind. I can go back to where my life was before I got saved. And I can remember how directionless I was. I can remember how I, I didn't have a, a course setting. I didn't have a, a sense of, of right and wrong that was compelling or that could stand up to any kind of, of philosophical inquiry. I was, I was what you would call, the Bible calls, lost. <laughs> and then I was saved. And my eyes were open and I grew spiritually. But what happens over time is that can diminish. Your thankfulness for that can diminish. And you get caught up in the here and now. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They forgot about the Red Sea. They forgot about the manna. They forgot about the Lord's provision and the Lord's direction. And they didn't remember the Lord's kindness. I pray this wouldn't be your spiritual autopsy that we're reading about. The second cause of death. Worldliness in verse 8. They walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. They did what the other nations did, in other words. They walked, the phrase, they walked like they walked. It's not talking about the same paths. I mean, Israel shared a highway with the Assyrians. The highway from the the Sea of Galilee, the the north uh, east side of it is the same highway that would go up the Assyrians would use. It goes up towards Damascus and Syria. I mean, it was a road used by lots of nations. This is not meaning they shared that road with other nations. That was not their problem. The problem wasn't they shared a highway. Their problem was that they, they shared the customs and the religion and the worship. So it could be said they walked like they walked. And they shared the worship that they worshipped. And that's the bottom line. At the end of the day, they want to simply live like the other nations lived. Verse 9, the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right. How do you keep a secret from God? <laughs> they tried. I mean, if I worship these idols in my own tents, God can't see through my tents. That was the idea. And it's even compounded by the fact that they were separated from Judah. The temple was in Judah. And so they thought, like the other nations, if you're out of sight of the temple, you're, the God can't see you. So they thought, we're out of Judah, so Yahweh can't see us. We can do whatever we want to do. That was their thinking. But of course, God can see them. This has been the besetting sin of Israel, hasn't it? They want to be like the other nations. They want a king like everybody has a king. They want to live like everybody else gets to live. They want to worship like the other nations want to worship. That's what happens with them. They, go back to the garden with Adam and Eve in your minds. God told Adam and Eve, you can eat any fruit you want except the fruit from this one tree. The serpent comes and asks them, what did God say? And they didn't start with... God said we could eat anything. Their mind, their heart, really, went right to the one forbidden fruit, didn't it? That's what makes it so sad. And you understand this. You understand this is even a parent, I'm sure. We get this played out in our house all the time. You know, we'll have a room full of toys, a room full of dolls, and we'll tell my youngest right now, Geneva, you can play with any of these, but you cannot play with this one hard doll in your bed because it will fall and make a sound on the floor and it's nap time and wake everybody up. Play with whatever you want to, not this one doll. Well, what's the most important doll in the world at that moment? The one, the one in the whole house. You should see the things she could play with, but not that one doll. But her eyes, as if it's the only thing in the world that she's ever wanted. That's it. 
She would be so happy of just that one thing. Don't we understand? And you know this. It could, you could, we could have picked anything. Don't play with the porcupine. And that would be what she would want to play with more than anything else. That's the Israelites. Do you remember what God told them? Cross the Jordan River, live wherever you want, and I will be their king. What is the very first thing they asked for in the book of Joshua? Do you remember? It was land on the other side of the river. God said to cross the river and take it all. And they said, oh, great. Do you mind if we take this land first, though? And then they cross the river, and what do they ask for? A king like the other nations. And Samuel even warns them and says, you're not even going to like the king. Other nations don't like theirs. What makes you think you'd like yours? <laughs> well, that's what they want. This is what Moses saw coming, of course. Deuteronomy 7, verse 5. The anger is picking up where we left off in Deuteronomy 7 a few minutes ago. The anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you if you were to be silly enough to act like the other nations, was verse 4 there. And he'll destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, that's the, the poles they had where they worshipped in a sexually perverse way, burn their carved images with fire. Verse 6, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God's chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. And the issue in Deuteronomy 7 is the same issue in 2 Kings 17. The people never really believed this to be true. They never believed God's word. They never trusted in his promises. Remember, they saw the Red Sea part. They saw the manna every day. They saw the quail. The whole thing was ridiculous, and yet they refused to believe the promises of Yahweh. Notice the very thing in Deuteronomy 7. Moses says, don't worship like them in these poles. That's the very thing you see listed that they did here in chapter 17. They worship their gods. But look at verse 10. They set up for themselves pillars in Asherim. That's the same thing they were banned in Deuteronomy 7 from doing. 2 Kings 17. 700 years later or so, they're doing it. And on every high hill, every green tree, it's just populated everywhere. And there they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did. See that phrase? As the nations did whom Yahweh carried away before them. They did wicked things, provoking Yahweh to anger. They served idols, which Yahweh had said to them, you shall not do this. Yahweh didn't generically say that to him. We just read the verse a second ago where he said it to him, specifically, by name. But they would not listen, it says. Verse 13, Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet. And we'll look at that actually with our, our third point. Before we get there, remember all that they saw. Now, where do you see this desire in your life? You, know, you see forgetfulness when you start to fail to remember the, the greatness of your salvation, but you see worldliness when you have the desire inside of you to live and act like those outside of Christ, live and act. And that's the essence of worldliness. You become focused. You know, the Lord tells you you have freedom in Christ. If something is honoring the Lord, do it. If something's honoring the Lord, go for it. You have freedom, but don't act in sinful ways. Don't act like those who are outside of Christ. And so our hearts immediately get drawn to that. We have sins that we're attracted to that are the very things the Lord forbid us from doing. But we don't rejoice in all things that God tells us to do. We get fixated on the things that God tells us not to do. That's worldliness. It's very much in line with the first sin of Adam and the subsequent sins of the Israelites. Thirdly, we see their cause of death, forgetfulness, worldliness, and thirdly, obstinance. 
which I'm not sure is really even a word, but has the alliteration going, so obstinance it is. Obstinance is stubbornness, but doubled down. You know, a donkey can be stubborn, but a donkey that chains itself to a tree is obstinate. <laughs> the Israelites weren't just stubborn, but they were obstinate, I think. And stubborn is a word we're going to see here in some translations. Let's look at verse 13. Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been and they did not believe in Yahweh their God. God sent warning after warning. God wasn't silent towards them. It's not like God said it wound them up and let them go and 700 years later checks in on them and it's a mess. God had been sending them prophets the whole time. I mean, go back in your mind in 1 Kings 18. We spent, what, three or four Sundays studying that last year, 1 Kings 18, because of how dramatic it was. Elijah, with the showdown of the prophets of Baal, everybody gathered around the pillar and the fire comes down and consumes all of them. I mean, this is not like if you squint hard enough, you might see Jesus' face in a tortilla kind of sign. This is fire coming from heaven and destroying the, the sacrifice to Yahweh and then all the prophets of Baal are, are obliterated. I mean, this is an incredible scene. In the next chapter, Israel went back to worshiping Baal. They're obstinate people. And the answer to that question, why do they keep worshiping the idols, gets to the hard issue. They wanted to be like the other nations, verse 15 says. They despised God's statutes and His covenant that was made with their fathers and the warnings He gave them. They went after false idols and they became false. What a great turn of phrase in the way the ESV renders that. That's a, I've got that underlined in my Bible. They went after false idols and they became false. I mean, that is a damning condemnation on someone right there. They went after what they worshipped and they became as false as the object of their worship. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them that they shall not do like them. That is their obstinance. Again, this is not unique to Israelites. Look at your own life. Ask yourself, do you learn from sin? When you've sinned and you repent, learn the lesson. I mean, have you ever sinned in your life and thought, Man, that turned out pretty well. I mean, I, I sinned. God told me not to do this, but I did it anyway. And that just returned blessing after blessing on my head. My life is so much better because of that. I mean, that's just not true. You sin and you regret it and you repent. But obstinance sets in when you go back to it. Like a dog returns to his vomit, Proverbs says. That's what people who are stuck in sin act like. I mean, we know that every human being who has ever lived has died and stood before God for judgment. And yet, how easy it is, is that for us to not contemplate that fact, to fancy ourselves as the one who would escape. In doing evangelism, you often run into non-believers who are like that. I mean, do you think about judgment? You might ask them, no. Does God judge people? Probably. It doesn't concern you? No. I'll be fine. I got my bases covered. People fancy themselves as being smart enough to outwit and outmaneuver the fate that every other human has had. And that's what it means to be obstinate. Well, fourth cause of death, sinfulness. We've seen their forgetfulness, their worldliness, their obstinance. Verse 16 picks up 
just their sinfulness, this blanket statement. They abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. I mean, this is going back to, was it 1 Kings, I don't know, 5 or 6 around there? Going, I'm sorry, after that, it's 1 Kings 13, going back there where they, they made the cows. They made an Asherah. They worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking them to anger. That phrase, sold themselves to do evil, that's the phrase, if you remember, that Elijah used to Ahab in 1 Kings 21. When Elijah confronted wicked King Ahab, and Ahab said, oh, what's going on? I mean, I murdered an innocent guy and took his vineyard, but it's not that big of a deal. And, and Elijah confronts him and says, you sold yourself to do evil. That phrase, sold yourself, it's, it's this idea that you're doing what you think is best and you're wrong. And you're wrong. If you've ever bought something on eBay, I mean, nobody sells something that's auctioned on eBay to the third or fourth highest bidder. And that's the whole business model is that you sell to the highest bidder. This is the folly of sin, that you think sin is the highest bidder. You think sin offers you more than obedience. You think the blessings of sin outweigh the blessings of God. That was Israel's plague here. They sold themselves out, not to God. They sold themselves out to live like the other nations. Therefore, God was provoked to anger. Verse 18, Yahweh was very angry with Israel, removed them out of his sight. No one was left with the tribe of Judah only. Remember, Israel and Judah had separated. That's all that God has left. By the end of chapter 17, all that's left is Judah in their land. The other tribes are gone. Judah also, by the way, if you're curious, a little interlude here, Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but they walked in the customs Israel had introduced. So Judah's not much better. There's a generation or two behind. Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel, and he afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he'd cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit their sins. That's described in more detail in 1 Kings 11 and 12. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this phrase, until this day. Until the day, not this present day, of course, but until the day Second Kings was written. And they'd be reading this. The Israelites would be reading this in Israel. This is who the book of Kings was written to, to the Israelites in exile. And think about how that's going to sting. You know, think if, if the U.S. got invaded by Canada. <laughs> they don't stand a chance, but for the sake of illustration. And they exile, they throw us down and we're, you know, huddled in some refugee camp in Guatemala and we're gathered around the campfire and somebody says, you know, there are Canadian Mounties walking up and down Braddock Road on this very day. <laughs> That's going to smart. <laughs> That's what the author of Kings is doing here. He's saying, right now, at this very moment while you're reading this, you people in exile, God has thrown you out of the land. He doesn't even want to look at you. You can't be surprised that this happens. There's a story in the news a while ago about a girl whose skin had turned bright orange. This is in London. She went to the doctors. The doctors do all kinds of tests on her, blood tests. And she's going to doctors and specialists for weeks. They finally tell her to monitor her diet and write down everything she's eating. Comes back. Turns out she was drinking 1.5 liters 
what is 1.5 liters in English? Um, it's like 50 ounces or something ridiculous like that. 1.5 liters of sunny delight a day. A day for years. And after all the blood tests, the doctors deduce that she'd been drinking too much sunny delight. What I loved about this story in the British newspaper that carried it, I think it was in the Independent that carried it, is they asked Procter & Gamble for, for a comment on this. <laughs> and the comment that Procter & Gamble gave was hilarious. It said, you know, we stand by, our drinks are totally safe, we, we stand by this. But uh, we want you to know that if you drank that much carrot juice every day, your skin would turn orange also. <laughs> and what do you think would happen? If you follow after the world, you begin to look like the world. If you live your life like the Israelites, then of course you're going to be exiled. You fill your life with sin, and you will become like the sin you pursue. That's the folly of idol worship. That's the folly of this kind of sinfulness. As you get exiled, and you know, your life stops making sense. When you get thrown out of the land... In fact, they didn't just reject God, they imported their own gods to worship, and God gives up on them. Think of how old the United States is. 235, 40 years. Israel had been around for 700 years at this point. And it's over. 700 years, and it's done. No more nation, no more land, no more king, no more nothing. It's all over. Well, that's the cause of death, and there's two parts of an autopsy. I learned from you know, the news stories about the Las Vegas shooting. First is the cause of death. The second is the circumstances of death. And it's the second thing the, the mortician or the coroner is supposed to determine, the cause and the circumstances. Let's look at the circumstances of Israel's death. That's how the chapter finishes off. First is that they're removed from their lands. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Katah, Avah, Hamath, Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So the way the, Samaria, the Assyrians took people captive is they, and exiled people is they didn't just remove you from your land and leave your land to follow. They removed you from your land and they filled it up with other people. You know, so a tourist from Judah would be coming up to see Samaria and walk in one day and all the houses are filled but just nobody's speaking Hebrew anymore is the problem. That's what's happened. The Israelites are removed and other people who are taken captive from other places in the Assyrian Empire are moved in. They're resettled. And that's what happens in verse 24. The Israelites are removed. New cities are, are there. New people are in the old cities. It says at the end of verse 24, people are living in their cities. <laughs> this gives a new meaning to Romans 9. Not all of Israel is Israel. I mean, that's for sure. These people are in the land, but they're not the recipients of the covenant. They're removed. Secondly, they're replaced in verse 25, all the way down. Replaced by whom? I don't mean the, the, the Assyrians, but look who replaces them. Verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, these other people from Babylon and the other places, they did not fear Yahweh. Well, of course not. Never heard of them. Therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, lions are not wild in Israel today, but lions used to roam wild in Israel. They're close to Israel, the closest I... Uh, if you wonder what I do with my, my week, the closest that lions get to Israel now is there are wild lions in the, the road from Egypt that leads up to, to Israel, but that's as close as they get, um, supposedly, according to National Geographic, and I'll take their word for it. But they used to roam freely in Israel. Remember, David encountered some, Samson managed to find one. 
Here, God sends lions. Maybe they imports them from Egypt. <laughs> and I don't think they had their own dramatic Red Sea crossing, but they figured out how they get there. And they come in and they start killing the Assyrians and the Babylonians who are living in the land. And so the king of Assyria was told, the nations you carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria don't know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they're killing them because they don't know the law of the God of the land. So this is the way these, these pagans think. Lions are devouring the people you settled in Israel. Therefore, it must be their local God who's upset at them. He's not thinking Yahweh's the God of the world. He's thinking like a pagan Babylonian or a pagan Assyrian would think that, that God has the, the God of this little zip code here must be upset with them because lions are eating people there. So figure out how to make their God happy. What do you do if you're the king of Assyria and you need to make Yahweh happy? Well, look what he does. He does it's, it makes sense to him. It's not a good idea if you've read Second Kings, but he hasn't read Second Kings. The king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. Let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So they, they round up some Levites and send the Levites back to Israel to teach them how to keep God's commands. If there's like an irony font, it would be here. <laughs> this should be printed, you know, red for the words of Jesus and, and a chartreuse for irony. This would be chartreuse right here. So, the priests whom they carried away from Samaria, verse 28, came and lived. Look at where they lived. In Bethel. That's one of the two cities where the cows were set up. I mean, these are worthless priests. They're brought back to Israel to teach people how to keep the law of God, and they moved to Bethel. What a joke. And they taught them how they should fear Yahweh. Yeah, right. <laughs> but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men in Babylon made Sakath benoth and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nivhaz, and Tartakamans listing their own gods. And the Sephirites uh, burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Amimelech, the gods of the Sepharvim. But they also feared Yahweh. They're sacrificing their children and worshiping their, their ridiculous gods they invented, but at the same time they say, Yahweh's one of the gods we worship. That was how good the Levitical priests did. In other words, they treated it, they didn't, the priests didn't learn their lesson. They also feared Yahweh and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests in high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places, all sorts of people. I love here that God replaced the Israelites with lions. I think that's ironic. God replaced them with lions, and the lions did more to provoke people to search for Yahweh than the Levites ever had done. The lions had more success driving people to the Lord than the Israelites had. You can tell how valuable a person is by what replaces them. I used to work at a restaurant, and uh, I saw one guy leave, and he had to be replaced by three other guys. You know, when the, when the cook left, they had to hire three other cooks to take the spot of this one cook. It was a barbecue restaurant. And they had another friend who was the dryer, and he got fired and replaced by a machine. He felt pretty bad about that. <laughs> I had a friend who played soccer with the LA Galaxy. He got traded to uh, Kansas City for a fourth-round draft pick in three years. Just marvel about how humbling that would be. <laughs> yeah, I got traded away. What would they get for me? You know, a fourth round draft pick in three years. Sad. <laughs> what did the Israelites get traded for? A dozen lions. 
the lions did a better job too than the Israelites ever did. Well, thirdly, they were removed, they were replaced. Finally, this whole cycle is repeated. I mean, we read how the nations that are there are already worshiping their own gods again while they're worshiping Yahweh at the same time. I mean, just like the Israelites did. At least they probably did so with some more sincerity than the Israelites. Verse 33, they feared Yahweh but also served their own gods. Verse 34, to this day they do according to their former manner. They don't fear Yahweh. They don't follow the statutes or the rules of the commandment that Yahweh made the children of Jacob, who he named Israel. I mean, the Israelites don't repent in their pagan lands. The people who are imported do a better job worshiping Yahweh, as half-hearted as that is, than the Israelites who got expelled. The new people are worshiping whatever they want to. I had a friend who, a uh, very serious illness, put in the hospital, uh, Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, and he was a seminary student, and we actually didn't know if he was going to live. And he had all kinds of pastors coming to visit him. John MacArthur came to visit him and uh, pray with him. And after two days in the hospital, he asked for the hospital chaplain to come visit him. And uh, so the hospital chaplain comes in, and she has the scarf with all the colors on it. And uh, she kneels down and prays for him. And my friend tells me it was like probably the most meaningless prayer he'd ever heard in his life. <laughs> Followed by, she gets up and tells him, you know, really, the main thing is that whatever, you, she never asked him what his religion is or anything like that. The main thing is whatever you believe in, that's got to give you hope right now. And then left. And he was just struck like, that's, I mean, that's, that's awful advice from a chaplain. But then again, what exactly did you expect? <laughs> what did you expect her to say? And this is your situation with the Israelites here. What do you expect the Levites to say when they come back? What do you expect the nations to do that are living there? Exactly what they're doing. And the whole cycle gets repeated. Verse 35, Yahweh made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice them, but you shall fear Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They don't. They just go back to their own ways. Verse 37, the statutes and the rules and the laws, the commandment that he wrote for you, you will be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. You shall not forget the covenant I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods. You shall fear Yahweh your God. I mean, do you see the repetition here? He will deliver you out of the hand of all of your enemies. And that's the sticking point right there. God said, if you worship me, I will deliver you from the Assyrians. I will deliver you from the Egyptians. And they refused to do that. Verse 40, they would not listen they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared Yahweh and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. I was eating at a Chinese restaurant in Spain, actually. There's Chinese restaurants everywhere. <laughs> With one of my friends, Carlos Casco. Uh, and... We're talking to the waiter, and we ask the waiter what, if he knows about the Lord, if, if he's a Christian, and the waiter tells us that he's actually a Buddhist. And so, so I ask him, oh, do you, do you believe in God? And he says, oh yeah, I believe in, in lots of gods. And so that means he's not a very educated Buddhist, you know, because there's a certain level of Buddhism you get to where you realize you don't actually believe in any gods. But this guy hadn't arrived at that point yet. So I believe in lots of gods. And that kind of surprised me. Because like in the, you know, the books, they all say Buddhists don't really believe in any gods, but they have idols kind of thing. But he said, no, I believe in lots of gods. I go, okay, tell me about one of your gods. And he says, oh, I can do better than tell you. I can show you. I go, okay. 
So he goes to the shelf, and he comes back out with this creature, this, this statue, about yay big, and it's, a, it's kind of a Buddha statue, but not like the Buddha statues you see in the United States. This is not the, the fat, happy Buddha. This is a skinny, flamboyantly colored Buddha with like ribbons and tassels and everything coming off of him, and he sets it at our table. And uh, my friend, Carlos, who's not known for his tact um, at all, starts talking to the idol, asking him questions. What should I order? You know, if you're the god of this restaurant, what, what should I order? <laughs> and the idol was not very conversational. Um, the waiter at this point had brought us our, our soup, and Carlos tries to feed the idol soup. And I'm like in the Southwest commercial thinking, I, I want to get away <laughs> right now. <laughs> I want to get away from Carlos feeding the idol soup. And the guy goes back to, to get her meals, and Carlos is a little bit more charismatic than me, looks at me and says, I'm claiming the promise right now that you can eat poison and it will not harm you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this folly that's inherent in idol worship. And what the author of Second Kings is doing is showing you when you forget about the Lord's mercy in your life, when you forget about the way the Lord has saved you through the gospel. When you start desiring to be like the world, when you start wanting the things the Lord tells you not to have, you are acting like the idol worshiper. That's the level of insight you have at that point. The Israelites were God's children, and yet they were banned from the land because they couldn't break themselves of this silly worship of verse 41 says the carved images. And they do it to this very day, even in exile. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who speaks. How ironic that people strive to worship idols that are silent while closing their ears to the God who speaks. The Israelites rejected all of the prophets. And so they rejected you. And we know finally, Lord, you spoke to us through your Son. You don't continue to send prophets today. You've spoken in an ultimate sense through your Son. He is our Savior. He is the Word of God who came to earth. He is your, in that sense, final revelation. He's revealed the way of salvation to us. Lord, guard our hearts from being like the Israelites, for being forgetful for being worldly, for being obstinate. Help us cherish Christ in our hearts. We know the danger of apathy and the danger of apostasy is real. There are demises in the church. There are those who will taste the goodness of God and yet fall away. There are those who will see the fruit in the promised land and yet not partake. Lord, I pray that as you examine our hearts, there would be no unbelieving heart found among those who are here tonight. And that we would be those who are bold and courageous in our faith and not of those who are weak and fickle. That we would remember your kindness towards us through Christ and not forget 
the clarity of the word you've spoken. Help us treasure Christ. Lord, we're grateful for him. We know that the Israelites are removed from the land, and so in a sense we fear apostasy in the church as well. Guard us, Lord. Keep us in the faith. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. We invite the guys back up. We close with a couple songs, Victory in Jesus, Nothing But the Blood. You can open your hymnals to hymn number 122. You know, after reading about a, a funeral for Israel, it's good to sing about the victory we have through the worship of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand together now, opening to hymn number 122. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.